Section 135 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 135. Minuet. Great misfortunes do not affect me very much, said John Brudel, an old bachelor who passed for a skeptic. I have seen war at quite close quarters. I walked across corpses without any feeling of pity. The great brutal facts of nature, or of humanity, may call forth cries of horror or indignation, but do not cause us that tightening of the heart, that shudder that goes down your spine at sight of certain little heart-rending episodes. The greatest sorrow that any one can experience is certainly the loss of a child to a mother, and the loss of his mother to a man. It is intense, terrible, it rends your heart and upsets your mind, but one is healed of these shocks, just as large bleeding wounds become healed. Certain meetings, certain things half-perceived or surmised, certain secret sorrows, certain tricks of fate which awaken us a whole world of painful thoughts, which suddenly unclose to us the mysterious door of moral suffering, complicated, incurable, all the deeper because they appear benign, all the more bitter because they are intangible, all the more tenacious because they appear almost factitious, leave in our souls a sort of trail of sadness, a taste of bitterness, a feeling of disenchantment, from which it takes a long time to free ourselves." I have always present to my mind two or three things that others would surely not have noticed, but which penetrated my being like fine, sharp, incurable stings. You might not perhaps understand the emotion that I retained from these hasty impressions. I will tell you one of them. She was very old, but as lively as a young girl. It may be that my imagination alone is responsible for my emotion. I am fifty. I was young then and studying law. I was rather sad, somewhat of a dreamer, full of a pessimistic philosophy and did not care much for noisy cafes boisterous companions, or stupid girls. I rose early, and one of my chief enjoyments was to walk alone about eight o'clock in the morning in the nursery garden of the Luxembourg. You people never knew that nursery garden. It was like a forgotten garden of the last century, as pretty as the gentle smile of an old lady. Thick hedges divided the narrow, regular paths, peaceful paths between two walls of carefully trimmed foliage. The gardener's great shears were pruning unceasingly these leafy partitions, and here and there one came across beds of flowers, lines of little trees looking like schoolboys out for a walk, companies of magnificent rose bushes, or regiments of fruit trees. An entire corner of this charming spot was inhabited by bees. Their straw hives, skillfully arranged at distances on boards, had their entrances, as large as the opening of a thimble, turned toward the sun, and all along these paths one encountered these humming and gilded flies, the true masters of this peaceful spot, the real promenaders of these quiet paths. I came there almost every morning. I sat down on a bench and read. Sometimes I let my book fall on my knees, to dream, to listen to the life of Paris around me, and to enjoy the infinite repose of these old-fashioned hedges. But I soon perceived that I was not the only one to frequent this spot as soon as the gates were opened, and I occasionally met face to face, at a turn in the path, a strange little man. He wore shoes with silver buckles, knee breeches, a snuff-colored frock coat, a lace jabot, and an outlandish gray hat, with a wide brim and long-haired surface that might have come out of the ark. He was thin, very thin, angular, grimacing, and smiling. His bright eyes were restless beneath his eyelids, which blinked continuously. He always carried in his hand a superb cane with a gold knob, which must have been for him some glorious souvenir. This good man astonished me at first, then caused me the intensest interest. I watched him through the leafy walls, I followed him at a distance, stopping at a turn in the hedge so as not to be seen." and one morning, when he thought he was quite alone, he began to make the most remarkable motions. First he would give some little springs, then make a bow. Then, with his slim legs, he would give a lively spring into the air, clapping his feet as he did so, and then turn round cleverly, skipping and frisking about in a comical manner, smiling as if he had an audience. 
twisting his poor little puppet-like body, bowing pathetic and ridiculous little greetings into the empty air. He was dancing. I stood petrified with amazement, asking myself which of us was crazy, he or I. He stopped suddenly, advanced as actors do to the stage, then bowed and retreated with gracious smiles, and kissing his hand as actors do, his trembling hand to the two rows of trimmed bushes. Then he continued his walk with a solemn demeanor. After that I never lost sight of him, and each morning he began anew his outlandish exercises. I was wildly anxious to speak to him. I decided to risk it, and one day, after greeting him, I said, "'It is a beautiful day, monsieur.' He bowed. "'Yes, sir, the weather is just as it used to be.' A week later we were friends, and I knew his history. He had been a dancing master at the opera in the time of Louis XV. His beautiful cane was a present from the Comte de Clermont, and when we spoke about dancing he never stopped talking. One day he said to me, "'I married La Castrie, monsieur. I will introduce you to her if you wish it, but she does not get here till later.' This garden, you see, is our delight and our life. It is all that remains of former days. It seems as though we could not exist if we did not have it. It is old and distingue, is it not? I seem to breathe an air here that has not changed since I was young. My wife and I have passed all our evenings here, but I come in the morning because I get up early. As soon as I had finished luncheon, I returned to the Luxembourg, and presently perceived my friend offering his arm ceremoniously to a very old little lady dressed in black, to whom he introduced me. It was La Castrie, the great dancer, beloved by princes, beloved by the king, beloved by all that century of gallantry that seems to have left behind it in the world an atmosphere of love. We sat down on a bench. It was the month of May. An odor of flowers floated in the neat paths. A hot sun glided its rays between the branches and covered us with patches of light. The black dress of La Castrie seemed to be saturated with sunlight. The garden was empty. We heard the rattling of vehicles in the distance. "'Tell me,' I said to the old dancer, "'what was the minuet?' He gave a start. The minuet, monsieur, is the queen of dances, and the dance of queens, do you understand? Since there is no longer any royalty, there is no longer any minuet. And he began in a pompous manner, a long dithyrambic eulogy which I could not understand. I wanted to have the steps, the movements, the positions explained to me. He became confused, was amazed at his inability to make me understand, became nervous and worried. Then, suddenly, turning to his old companion, who had remained silent and serious, he said, Elise, would you like— "'Say, would you like... it would be very nice of you if you would show this gentleman what it was?' She turned eyes uneasily in all directions, then rose without saying a word and took her position opposite him. Then I witnessed an unheard-of thing. They advanced and retreated with childlike grimaces, smiling, swinging each other, bowing, skipping about like two automaton dolls moved by some old mechanical contrivance, somewhat damaged but made by a clever workman according to the fashion of his time. And I looked at them, my heart filled with extraordinary emotions— my soul touched with an indescribable melancholy, I seemed to see before me a pathetic and comical apparition, the out-of-date ghost of a former century. They suddenly stopped. They had finished all the figures of the dance. For some seconds they stood opposite each other, smiling in an astonishing manner. Then they fell on each other's necks, sobbing. I left for the provinces three days later. I never saw them again. When I returned to Paris two years later, the nursery had been destroyed. What became of them, deprived of the dear garden of former days, with its mazes, its odor of the past, and the graceful windings of its hedges? Are they dead? Are they wandering among modern streets like hopeless exiles? Are they dancing, grotesque specters, a fantastic minuet in the moonlight, amid the cypresses of a cemetery, along the pathways bordered by graves? Their memory haunts me, obsesses me, torments me, remains with me like a wound. Why? I do not know. No doubt you think that very absurd. End of section 135. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.